Well, good morning. It is a, a joy to be here this morning. As was mentioned, uh, my daughter, my oldest daughter, Brianna, uh, attends here, became a member not long ago. So there is a special connection uh, that we have to this church. We're very thankful for the fellowship and instruction that it, it provides our daughter. And uh, she always has great reports of what's going on here and the ministry that takes place here. Uh, I know Adam a little bit. We've had some interaction over the years. He, too, has been to Samara. Uh, that was at a time when I had already left the field there. He went for a short trip to teach as, as part of the training that goes on there. So there's also an affinity for your pastor uh, there in uh, Samara, Russia. They remember, uh, the students there remember him fondly. In fact, I was in Russia just a couple of weeks ago, and, and uh, Adam's name came up again as one of the favorite teachers there. So uh, we, we like and love this church and, and the ministry that goes out from this church. And uh, we know some of you here. And, and of course, Dr. Barrick has had a ministry here. He's a, a beloved professor, former professor for me. And then I had the uh, joy for a couple of years of being a colleague before he retired. And then, of course, uh, Keith Essex, who's also had a part of the ministry here. Uh, same thing with him. Uh, served alongside of him for a number of years before he retired, and even before that was a student of his way back in the 90s. So uh, the connections here are, 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 are good and strong and, and beloved, and we appreciate all that the Lord is doing in your midst. And especially grateful for the opportunity to have, uh, to, to have this time to open God's word and serve you this morning through this, this word, the ministry of the word. If you could take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to be spending our time uh, in the first two verses of Hebrews chapter 12. But as you turn there, I want to uh, provide some of the context of this letter to help us understand uh, the, the, the context into which the words were spoken, the words that we're going to study this morning, verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews chapter 12. This letter was written uh, around AD 67, before the destruction of the temple of, in, in Jerusalem written to a mixed audience. They're, they're Jewish, as the title of this letter even says, Hebrews. Most of the recipients of this letter were true believers. They had come to confess that Jesus, the historical person of Jesus, was the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises concerning the Messiah. And they confessed this historical person of Jesus as their Lord and Messiah. Now, for those believers, that confession of faith brought distinct consequences, particularly the consequence of ostracism from their families, from those who did not believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And so to profess Jesus as Lord in, in that context would have brought with it all kinds of, of negative consequences, the kind of persecution that would result uh, being left out of family inheritances, being left out of family fellowship, losing jobs, all those kinds of things were, were part and parcel of what the Jewish believers in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas would have faced as a result of their profession of faith in Jesus. And it was hard going. And we can read of this as we go through the letter of Hebrews. You can read the, the writer addressing some of these difficulties as, as even some of these believers were questioning whether they made the right decision, whether the profession that they made was right. And, and there was tremendous pressure on these believers to 
to, to maintain the same customs of the old covenant, to maintain the same religious traditions as the rest of their families, of, of, of those who had not believed in Jesus as the Messiah, and to continue presenting offerings at the temple and going through all the rituals that were connected with old covenant Judaism and, and the Mosaic law and everything that the temple there in Jerusalem represented. Tremendous pressure on them to, to assimilate in, back into that kind of religious practice. It was difficult for those early Jewish believers. And then there were some in their midst among these these churches in, in, in the area of Judea, some who had not yet professed faith in Jesus, recognized in Jesus a, a, a certain attractiveness and, and recognized in the fellowship of the saints a certain attractiveness. And they were drawn to that. And so they became partakers of, of the good things that flow through God's true people, the, the church. And yet they themselves were on the fence. Uh, they had not come to that point yet where they would, would, would lay aside everything, take up their cross, and follow Jesus as their Messiah. Uh, they were still on the fence. They were still wondering whether this was the right thing to do. They saw the persecution of those true believers. They were hesitant to embrace Jesus, and yet they were part of, of these congregations, and this letter was also addressed to them. And the writer of this letter addresses these audiences with one essential theme, and that is the superiority of Jesus. The superiority of Jesus in relation to everything that the Jewish people had ever experienced in the whole history of redemption. The superiority of Jesus over Moses. The superiority of Jesus over angels. The superiority of Jesus as, as the high priest. His superiority over the priesthood. The superiority of his ministry of intercession. The superiority of his once for all sacrifice. The writer over and over again addresses these, these listeners, this, these audiences, and emphasizes that Jesus is superior. That's the main essence of this letter. And he does so to emphasize to those who are on the fence that nothing in the Old Covenant could compare with what Jesus did and does. And he emphasizes the superiority of Jesus also to the believers, particularly with reference to their need to endure. That because Jesus is superior, he provides all that's necessary for them to endure, even in the midst of this tremendous pressure from their families, from their social context. This tremendous pressure to, to, to fall back into the old traditions. To just add Jesus to these other things and to, to assimilate and, and to syncretize. And the writer says, no, Jesus is superior all those other things were but a shadow of the superiority that we find in Jesus Christ. And he emphasizes this so that these, writer, these readers would have the knowledge they needed to endure. In fact, if we would call the superiority of Jesus the main theme of the letter, the second theme, the consequential theme that flows out of that, is the need to endure. 
Because Jesus is superior, we must endure in the Christian faith. Because Jesus is the climax of God's redemptive activity, we must endure in following Him. So with that said, let's look now at Hebrews chapter 12, at these first two verses. And we're going to see how this theme of the superiority of Jesus and the need to endure is now expressed in these very familiar words. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In these two verses, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, the writer exhorts us, exhorts the readers of this letter to exercise endurance in the Christian life. And he does this by likening the the Christian life to a race. And he gives us instructions about how we can run this race victoriously. You see, we are really not that much different from this original audience of Jewish believers. In the sense that we too live in a context which is constantly pressuring us to not get too serious and devoted and radical in following Jesus. Yes, you may be able to add Jesus to your life, but you still must keep the traditions and the cultural norms and practices. You still must assimilate into the culture and look like the culture and that everything will be fine. We know that Jesus calls us to, to leave the past and he calls us to radical obedience so that in any context that we are in, we would look different. We would be different from the world around us. And yet we face the pressure all the time, especially in our increasingly hostile culture, a culture hostile to Jesus and all that he represents. And, and maybe many of you or some of you in this context are even wondering whether obedience to Jesus is really worth it because of the consequences that you'll face in your own circles. Whether that be a, a family context where you're the only believer and, and your entire family looks on you as one of these strange aliens that is weird because you pray to Jesus or you pray in the name of Jesus and, and you're here on a Sunday morning and you don't sleep in and you go to Bible study and you talk about the gospel and things of that nature and you, your family looks on you as an oddity and they put pressure on you to conform to their practices. Or perhaps it's your circle of, of, of fellow students at, at, at school or in the university or maybe it's your colleagues at work who just will not tolerate the fact that you don't go drink with them and you don't smoke with them and you don't do the things that they do and talk the way that they talk. And that to them is unacceptable. And they respond with pressure and persecution in that soft kind of persecution way of manipulation. And you're wondering, do I really need to be different? Do I really need to endure? And these words will give us the instruction 
we need to endure. True biblical faith, as we're going to see, faith in Jesus is an enduring faith. True biblical faith is the kind of faith that will persevere. And that's what the reader or the writer called his original readers uh, to, and it's what he calls us to as well this morning. As we go through this text in Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, uh, we're going to notice the instructions uh, that he gives in terms of five components. Five components, very simple here. We're going to notice a clear command. This is the heart of his instruction. A clear command. We're going to notice a moving motivation. A moving motivation. Uh, we're going to look at particular preparation for fulfilling the command. Particular preparation. We're going to look at the main means to fulfillment of the command. The main means and then we're going to look at the magnificent model. The command, the motivation, the preparation, the means, and the model. Let's look at the first of these, the, the clear command, the heart of these two verses, this sentence. It's found really here at the end of verse, uh, or the, 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 the middle, end of verse 1. He says this, Therefore, let us run the race set before us. Therefore, let us run the race set before us. We, we first must look at this very first word in our text, the word therefore, and it's, it's not the usual word for therefore. It's actually a very emphatic word that, that forces us to read what follows in light of what has just preceded. And we know that Hebrews chapter 11 is that chapter of the great hall of faith. All the saints, and, and, and not even all of them are named. We, we have references to many, to many, to many in that chapter, chapter 11, the, the great hall of faith of those who exercised faith and endured. And so we have to read verses 1 and 2 in light of that context. But particularly, we must look at verse 39, uh, or sorry, verse uh, 39 and 40. Look at verse 39 and 40. This is the end of the hall of faith, chapter 11. And it is the bridge to what the writer says about what we are to do in light of this great hall of faith. Verse 39 says this, And all these, referring to those referred previously in, in chapter 11, And all these, having gained approval th through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Now, there's a lot that we could talk about with those verses. It is somewhat perplexing, and we don't need to get into all those details, but we need to recognize one main thing to provide us light for our study of verses 1 and 2. And the main thing is this. The writer of Hebrews, after giving us this great description of faithful heroes emphasizes this one thing. These people, referred to in chapter 11, persevered to the end even though they had an inferior environment. The writer wants to emphasize that all these heroes of chapter 11, great men and women of the faith, they did what they did, and they experienced what they experienced, and they persevered to the end in an inferior environment. They did so, he says, 
without what we have today. He says, we who live in the time after Jesus, they lived in the time before Jesus, we who lived in the time after Jesus have superior privileges. We have superior benefits. We have superior knowledge than what they did. In fact, going back to 11 verse 13, sheds more light on this contrast. In 11 verse 13, the writer says this, all these died in faith, without receiving the promises, particularly the promises of the Messiah. Men like Noah, Abraham, David, these men heard about the promises, received promises, but never saw those promises realized, and yet they lived a life of persevering faith. Verse 13, all these died without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed, that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Now the writer comes to chapter 12 then, and he wants the readers, he wants us to recognize this very important reality. That as great as those men and women were of chapter 11, of the Old Testament, the Old Testament saints, they, they lived their lives of faith with less than what we have today. They did it with less. And so now he turns with this word, therefore. And now he turns the focus onto us and emphasizes we have it better. We have superior knowledge, superior benefits, superior privileges. In fact, when we look at this text, if we would look at it in the original we would see also, it's, it's not carried through in our translations, but there's another pronoun here. And, and the writer says this, Therefore, let us ourselves run the race. Therefore, let us ourselves. The writer wants to say, they did it. Now it's our responsibility. Now it's our need. Now it's our uh, command. It's our obligation. And he says, we have much more than what they did. Now, what are we to do then? He says, therefore, let us ourselves run the race. Run the race. There's the heart of the command. And let's look at that for just a moment as we, we continue the study of this clear command. He says, let us run the race. Uh, this, this idea of, of running a race is a, was a very common idiom in, in the world at that time. And of course, he's addressing a Hebrew audience, but the Hebrews at that time lived in the Greek world. They were immersed into the, 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 the world, the empire of that time, the Greco-Roman Empire, and, and the concept of the Greek games was everywhere. In fact, the Greeks, not only being the, the ones to really develop philosophy and ethics and things like that, the Greeks developed sport. In fact, most of our sporting events today, in fact, even how we build stadiums, that's not new. That goes all the way back to the time of the Greeks. They were experts in, in sporting events, in the Olympics, you, you know that. They, that. That comes from the Greek times. And the Greeks loved competitions, and so we read in the New Testament, Paul, Paul loved to use these, these sporting, these athletic idioms because it was so pervasive uh, in the world at that time. And the writer of Hebrews does the same thing, and he says, let us run the race. The word there used for race is the word from which we get agony. Because for the, the Greek mind, a, a sporting event, 
A, a true sporting event, a true athletic competition was nothing but agony. It was something that required tense exertion, maximum effort, a constant concentration of energy, and it involved pain. There was no true sporting event, no true athletic competition without pain. And so it was a very effective idiom for describing the Christian life. And the writer here says, to run the race correctly, to run the race successfully, victoriously, you have to look at the Christian life not as the life of ease and comfort, not as the life that's going to bring to you just constant blessing, a bed of roses, just a, a gingerly walk through the, the park. No, it is, a, it is agony. It, it is tense exertion. That's what the Christian life is about. Paul himself said on his first missionary journey, as he went back through the churches that he had planted, Acts chapter 14, verse 22 and 23, he taught the disciples that it is only through many trials and tribulations that they would enter into the kingdom of God. That's the true picture of the Christian life. And we must begin with that thought because today, especially in Western materialistic society, the church has embraced a message that basically says, let's preach to the world that if, if they will just embrace Jesus everything will go great for them in this life. That all the solution to their problems is just found in just coming to church and becoming a member and, and, and just adding Jesus and it'll solve everything. And that gospel is perpetrated throughout the Western world and even by missionaries around the world. But that's not how the biblical writers perceived of the Christian life. It is a race that requires maximum effort. It requires constant concentration. And it will be a, a, a life of pain. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.12, 6, uh, Fight the good fight, Timothy. And Paul himself says, as he comes to the end of his life, I have fought the good fight. That's not just the fight of an apostle. That's the fight of a true follower of Jesus. It is a race. It is like an athletic contest, and it cannot be won victoriously apart from this understanding. Now notice, he describes it not only as a race, but he says it is a race set before us. And that description, the, the concept of a race that is placed before us, emphasizes predetermination. And it appears that the writer is emphasizing this because, again, for these original Jewish readers... They were wondering whether this was the right race. Maybe I got into the wrong competition. Maybe I need to be over there in that lane or over there in that stadium. I got somehow into the wrong line. And I got to change, change competitions here. This just doesn't make sense. But, Paul, or, but the writer here of Hebrews emphasizes that this is a race that has been predetermined. It has been set. And it emphasizes the idea that the master of the games, who's not mentioned in this idiom, but is assumed, it is God himself, and he has set the course before us. He is the one who has predetermined the difficulties, the challenges that we will face along the track. He is the one who has designed it to a T so that it includes everything that it needs to for his greatest glory and our greatest good. It is a race that is set before us. It is not by coincidence. It's not by accident. 
Everything that we endure, that we face on this track called the Christian life has been placed there by God himself in his omnipotence and his omniscience and his great love and his great wisdom. It has been set before us. So the writer says, let us run this race. Let us ourselves run this race that has been appointed to us. That's the clear command. Now let's look at the moving motivation. Moving motivation is found in, in, in verse 1 as well. It's found in this, this clause that precedes the command where the writer says this, Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Now, obviously, this cloud of witnesses refers to the, the, the heroes mentioned in chapter 11. Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. The emphasis here is on a present reality. Not that we had it at one time, but we have it now. We have this great cloud of of witnesses. It's a constant reminder, a, a constant reality that as we run the race, no matter where we are on that track, there is a cloud of witnesses that encompasses us. He calls it a great cloud, so great a cloud of witnesses. And notice, he doesn't say clouds. He emphasizes here the sheer quantity and the unity of this group of witnesses. It's a great group, and they're all unified. It's, it's like fog. You can't tell where one part of the fog ends and the other begins. It's, it's all intertwined. It's, it's a unified cloud of witnesses. Now, this term witnesses is, is very interesting, and it's fascinating to consider what, what the writer means by it. And some have suggested that uh, up, in, up in heaven, you have Abraham, and, and, and you have David, and you have Noah, and Enoch, you have Abel, and, and all the other saints, Sarah. They're all looking down on us and, and, and cheering us on, and that's what it means to be a witness, uh, that's not what the writer means here. We certainly could understand that because even from the gr- Greek games, they would build their, their, uh, uh, their, their uh, stadiums and in those stadiums, the spectators would, would line the, the rows and then would cheer on their favorite contestant. But that's not the emphasis here. The term for witnesses is not that they are passively watching us. Rather, the term witnesses is active. It's not that they are observing us. It's that they are speaking to us. Go back for a moment, even to chapter 11, verse 4. Here, the talk is about Abel, this first hero of faith. And we read in 11, verse 4, that Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. He still speaks. And the emphasis there is that Abel's life still testifies to us today. It's not that he's watching us. I, I'm very confident that Abel has no interest in my life. He's not watching me. I don't want him to. <laughs> But his life speaks to me. Though dead, he still speaks. 
And the same thing with, with Noah, and the same thing with David, the same thing with Sarah, the same thing with Ruth, and all the other Old Testament saints. It's not that they watch us and cheer us on, it's that they speak through their lives to the reality of true faith, that true faith endures. And this is the cloud that surrounds us. All these Old Testament heroes, though they are dead, they continue to have a very important role in our lives because this is what they testify, that true faith perseveres and that they, even in inferior contexts, with less knowledge than what we have, only seeing Jesus from a distance, not even knowing the time or the place uh, where he would do his work. They, they, they just had these basic promises that with that inferior knowledge and those inferior blessings, they had a faith which persevered and they speak to us. And they say, if we can do it, so can you who have so much more. That's the cloud of witnesses that surrounds us. And that provides for us this moving motivation that when we come up against the trials in our own contexts, and the questions about whether I'm in the right race and whether I have made the right choice and we have these temptations that, that fill our lives, we must go back to the Old Testament saints. We must listen to their lives. And we must hear them saying, true faith perseveres. And the faith that comes through Jesus will give you what you need to make it victoriously to the end. That's the moving Motivation. Let's look now at the particular preparation. Any race, any competition uh, requires preparation, and, and the writer includes that as he uses this idiom in, in verse 1 as well, when he says, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles. Again, verse 1, here's the preparation. The command was to run the race. The, the motivation was that we have a whole cloud of witnesses who are speaking through their lives that this race can be run and it can be won. And, and now we have the preparation. How are we to do this? If we are to, to get to the finish line victoriously, how are we to do this? And the writer gives us the preparation here when he says, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles. He, he gives us two aspects of this preparation. Notice it in the text. Two aspects of the preparation. First of all, he says, let us lay aside every encumbrance. Now, the, the Greeks knew very well about the importance of physical fitness. When we talk about athletes today and, and the great efforts they go to, uh, to be as physically fit as possible for whatever athletic competition uh, they, are, uh, they are engaged in, uh, that's not new. The Greeks themselves had... Had, had really perfected that, and, and the Greek runners in particular, in preparation for their, their running, would seek to shed every possible ounce of needless body weight. That was paramount in their minds, that to run the race that's coming up in two months or one year, I've got to shed everything that I don't need for this race. And the writer takes that concept and he brings it in here. This idea of encumbrance, it's, it's a neutral term. It's not necessarily referring to anything bad. It, it can't even refer to something which is good, but not necessary. Now, for the original Jewish audience, what were some of these, this encumbrance? It, it could have very well been 
some of the good things uh, of those Old Testament traditions. They were not inherently evil. God had commanded them. They were not wrong. They were necessary for that particular dispensation. And they were tempted to continue carrying those traditions along with them on this race of the Christian life. And the writer says, you know what? You've got to lay aside every encumbrance. Even those good things which in themselves are not inherently evil but are not necessary and may even be hindering you to full obedience. Lay them aside. And again, that has direct influence or or application to our lives today. In our running of the race, there may be good things, perhaps even certain religious traditions, that in themselves are not wrong. But they may have come to occupy a place in our lives where they have no longer served the necessary purpose and now are becoming a distraction. Now we're taking our eyes, uh, uh, they are now taking our eyes off of the the most necessary priority and becoming an obstacle. And the writer here says, you've got to lay aside everything that inhibits you from endurance. Whatever that is, those things that God has even created for you to enjoy, those things may be inhibiting you and The writer calls you to lay it aside. But not only that, he says you must also lay aside, verse 1, the sin which so easily entangles. Now he gets to the negative. Not just the neutral, but the negative. And here, what, what is the sin that so easily entangles? We don't know. The writer doesn't say specifically what this was for the original audience. Perhaps the sin which so easily entangled these original readers was the sin of shame. Or the sin of fear, fearing what their families said, what their friends said, what their social context said. And that fear was the sin, fear of man, which was preventing them from running with endurance. And the writer says, you've got to lay that aside. That's sin, fear of man, that's sin. But the writer doesn't say, and it's perhaps purposefully ambiguous, because this sin that entangles can be different for different people in our day just as much as it was in that original context. And it forces us to ask the question that as I struggle in this race and as I face these challenges and and feel inhibition and, and obstacles, is there sin, any kind of sin, which is causing this in my life? And the writer says preparation for running this race requires the laying aside of this sin. We can put it in other terms. It requires mortification. It requires putting to death uh, of that which so easily entangles. And the idea here is, is you, know, you know the thorn bushes, that you walk through them, and as you walk through them, it only clasps, grabs onto you more and more to the point where you can't walk very far anymore. I've got a blackberry bush beside my house, and it started as just one single little plant. Now it's trying to envelop the whole house, climb up the side of the house, everything very prickly, if you fell into that, it would be close to death. It is so dangerous, and, uh, but it's got tasty blackberries. You just got to be careful with that. But it's entangling. You, you have to cast it aside because as you run the race, if this sin allows, is allowed to continue, it will only pull you back further and further and further. That's the preparation that's required. Now let's look at the fourth component here, the main means. The main means. 
Very simple, very simple phrase. And like I said, it's really the second main theme of this letter. He says, with endurance. Let us run the race. That's the clear command. Let us run the race with this cloud of witnesses surrounding us. That's the moving motivation. Let us run the race casting off that which entangles us. That's the preparation. And now he gets to the main means. He says, let us run the race with endurance. And again, we don't have time this morning to go into it. But like I said, endurance is is a secondary theme, the second theme to this entire epistle. You see it from chapter 1 all the way to the end, chapter 13. Endurance is wrapped into so many of the exhortations and the instructions here. It's what these original readers needed. Endurance, endurance, endurance. And again, we must make sure that in our understanding of the Christian life that we realize that an important ingredient and an and, and important means to living this life is the means of endurance. It's, it's not foreign to the Christian life. It's integral. For example, in chapter 10, verse 23, the writer says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Chapter 10, verse 36. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Verse 4 of chapter 12 even says, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Over and over, those are just a few of the verses, but over and over, the writer says you need endurance, and this is the main means to the Christian life. Endurance. And it leads us to this very important Realization that the Christian life is not a sprint, it's a marathon. It's not a contest of speed, but of stamina. It's not a life of occasional spurts of energy. It's constant plodding. And as I, as I interact with men, for example, in the men's ministry, you, 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 know, you can tell the difference between those who are just searching for these emotional highs in their life is like a yo-yo, up and down and up and down and up and down. And they try to get the yo-yo to go higher the next time, but then it only falls lower the next time. And and those are the men that are struggling. And then you have these steady plotters whose, whose lives are just this slow, steady climb, and they're the bedrocks. And the Christian life, true sanctification, is often best represented in this slow, steady progress rather than the yo-yo activity of ups and downs. And the writer emphasizes here, it's about endurance. It's about endurance. There's no special secret. There's no special shortcut somewhere that you can bypass these difficulties. It just comes down to endurance. And that leads us now to the final final component, which is found in verse 2, the magnificent model. Because if we would have read just verse 1, it could still lead us to, to a little bit of discouragement that, yeah, the Old Testament heroes, they did it with less than what we have, but still, it's just discouraging to think that, you know, it, it's, it's a life of, of agony, life of pain. But he gives us in verse 2 the magnificent model. Notice what verse 2 says. Let me look at the first half. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. There was a motivation in in verse 1 of the Old Testament saints, but here you have the model, Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. And this is why we have it better. 
we see Jesus. We see him presented for us in the Gospels, in clarity. The Old Testament saints saw him, but from a distance, with only some information revealed about him through those precious promises. But we see Jesus. We have the testimony of the apostles. We have the testimony of the Gospel writers to his life. And so in contrast to the cloud of witnesses, and there were many of those witnesses, we just fix our eyes on one, and that's on Jesus. We fix our eyes on this one who is superior. And because he is superior, by fixing our eyes on him, we will have all that we need to get through this race. The word here for fixing our eyes means to deliberately look off other objects and look onto one specific one. And that's the picture here, that we're to get our eyes off the the obstacles. We're to get our eyes off the the sidelines. And we're to get our eyes on one thing. And if you're a, a runner, you know this, that the thing that you need to do in running is focus on the tape that's at the end of the course. The moment you let your eyes wander, you pull up. But you focus your eyes on that end goal. And you... You focus on the fastest way there, and the writer here says, that's what we must do. And that tape at the end of the course is none other than Jesus. And he's described with two very fascinating titles. He's called the author of our faith. And, and that, might, that, that translation might lead us to think that, well, here he's the one who has simply given us instructions. He's come up with the the prototype or the blueprints, and he's the the writer of it. This word for author is actually better translated as the instigator or forerunner. He is the first one to finish the race. He is the one who has already crossed the finish line. He is the one who is already standing there complete, finished. He is the The runner, the ultimate runner of the race, the ultimate example for us to follow. We follow his number. He's also called the perfecter of our faith. And again, it's not so much the idea of him standing apart from us and just tweaking things along the way. The idea of perfecter is the one who has brought something to a successful conclusion. And the meaning of this is is that he has run the race and he has run it victoriously. And the writer, again, wants us to to, to get our focus on Jesus as superior. He is the the example. And and in this letter to the Hebrews, what's very important to understand that as the writer emphasizes the superiority of Jesus, he doesn't so much emphasize the deity of Jesus, although there are texts like Hebrews 1 verse 8 that speak amazingly about the deity of Jesus. But the focus of the writer of Hebrews is on the humanity of Jesus. And saying it's his humanity which makes him superior. His humanity. You see, if we just focus on his deity, we could say, well, yeah, Jesus could do these things because he was God. He he could run this race because he was God. I'm not God, so I can't do it. But the writer wants to remove that kind of abstract thinking, that, that distant kind of picture, and say, no, Jesus did this in his humanity. And his humanity is... Is, is emphasized from, from beginning to end. For example, chapter 2, verse 9 says this, but the one made a little lower than the angels we see, Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he, must, he might taste death for everyone. 
that emphasizes his humanity. You could look at a text like chapter 2, verses 14 to 15, that since children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Chapter 2, verse 28, since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Chapter 4, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. 5, verse 8 and 9, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who, who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Chapter 6, verse 20, Jesus has entered into the veil of God's presence as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In all these texts and others, the humanity of Jesus is emphasized. And the writer holds them up and says, here is Jesus. Here is his humanity. Here he is in his human form. In his human nature. And he, run, he ran the race. The same race. And he was victorious. You follow his lead. He is the ultimate human. He is the model. In fact, notice this in the rest of verse 12 as we draw our study to a close. You have the description of how he ran the race. Notice this, the next phrase. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. That's the course set before Jesus. Notice the same terms are used. He endured the cross. That term for endure is the same cognate, same related word as we find in verse 1, that we are to run with endurance. Because why? Jesus endured. We see that he too had a course set before him. The cross was set before him. That was his race. So too we have a race set before us. He too focused on the the goal, the goal of joy. And and, and we too focus on a goal. And he too did not allow anything to entangle him, including the shame of the cross. Did not prevent him from running as he had to run. And notice also how how Jesus ended, how Jesus finished. Not only did he endure the cross and despise its shame, the last clause of verse 12, and he has now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's his perfection. He's the forerunner. That's the cross. And then he perfected his running by sitting down at the right hand of the throne of God. In Jesus, we see our true vocation. In Jesus... We see what we, how we are to live. Now, of course, he is superior. He is the sacrifice, the priest. He is the ultimate lawgiver. But he is our example. And that's why we must fix our eyes on him. He ran the race of the cross. And he endured it. And he was victorious. And if we follow him and his example and rely upon his strength, placing all our trust in him, we too can run the race victoriously. How about you? Where are you in this race? Where are you in this picture? 
Are you even a runner? Are you even a runner? Or are you one of those who's on the fence, says the race is too hard? Well, we don't have time to look at it today, but the writer of Hebrews elsewhere says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts. Jesus is superior, provides everything that you need for everything from forgiveness to endurance to final glory. For you, the challenge is to trust in Jesus for all of that, to see him truly as superior to everything else that could possibly be offered you in this life. And he will not be ashamed of you, and he will bring you through to the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you have given to him to us not only as the demonstration and incarnation of deity, but that in your wisdom and power, you have given him, the Son, to us in human form to show us what we ourselves must be like. And of course, as a human, he was tempted in all things. We are faced the same temptations along the course of life that he ran with endurance and he accomplished our salvation on the cross. We thank you for him. We pray that as we live our lives as believers, that you would fix our eyes on him. We need your strength grace for that, to take our eyes off the encumbrances, and to fix them on Jesus. We pray also for those who may be here who have never seen the superiority of Jesus, have never seen his beauty, have never understood his sacrifice. We pray that you would give them understanding, open their eyes to his beauty, give them a heart to believe, place it upon them that they would not let this day pass without coming to confess him as their Lord and Savior. We ask this in his name. Amen.